You ready? You ready for I'm this? I'm ready. Right. Oh, is that going to be our theme song for this episode? <laughs> Welcome back to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. <laughs> Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Hannah. And I'm Tyler. We're here to learn more about the lives of authors that have inspired us. A journey into the stories they not only created, but also lived. So join us as we dive deep into the worlds that live just out of reach. Now I'm just an old southern lawyer. Don't know too much about the big city. (laughs) What you do. But I believe what we have here is a simple case of someone writing a great book and and then not wanting the accolades for such uh, endeavor. And it's never it. what I think it's going to be. What's that? <laughs> it's oh. never what I think it's going to be. Like, I should have expected this. You should have. As an should old have. Southern lawyer? Come on. That's classic. <sighs> this is on me. <laughs> Welcome to Between Lewis and Lovecraft, where we are investigating the uh, life of, uh, of an author who has gone down as one of the most influential. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I wish people could have seen that cheek shake that you just did. (laughs) Influential. (laughs) Welcome back to Between Lewis and Lovecraft. I'm Tyler. I come up with stupid bits at the beginning of every single episode. With me, as always, is Hannah, who's actually done the work. This episode would have been like five times as long if you kept up that southern drawl for the entire show. <laughs> well, I say in her early life, she was born in April 28th, 1926. Monroeville, no, no, we Alabama. No. <laughs> we are going to lose listeners or they're going to set it to like, um, you know, double speed or whatever you can yeah, do on the app. Like up it. So I'll sound like a chipmunk and you'll sound like a normal human being. <laughs> and that's a mod when the time she decided to go down and write herself a book. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, listeners, we are talking about Harper Lee today, uh, most famous, only famous for writing the classic To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, uh, which she got was famous for To Kill a Mockingbird, and then she got infamous for her other book. Sort of, yeah. I She was infamous, I think, before that, simply because she, like, rocketed to fame and then disappeared. And everybody was like, she wrote one of the most influential books of the 20th century. And now she won't talk to any reporters. Uh, Nobody ever really sees her outside of her small town in Alabama. Like, what's the deal? (laughs) What's the deal? What is it? Harper Lee, what's the deal? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, did you have to read To Kill a Mockingbird in school? Like, was that? Yeah. I I feel like that was assigned reading for everybody. Um, I for a long time I confused it with another book that I read called The, uh, the Roll of Thunder. 
I've not read that one. So are they similar at all? Uh, only that they both have black people in them. Okay. So no, not really. <laughs> no. Uh, they're two completely different characters, two completely different stories. A Rule of Thunder deals with kind of the same theme of you know dealing with racism in America, um, but it's a, it's completely different. It's just a completely different story. Well, I mean. It's kind of fitting that you got the two confused in your mind because after To Kill a Mockingbird came out, like every other book that dealt with race in America was immediately compared to To Kill a Mockingbird, which annoyed other authors because they were like, no, this is a totally different story. Like, stop comparing it. Um, So, yeah, kind of fitting that even now, you know, any story that deals with race in America, it's like, oh, this is a new To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry. And the name of it was Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've heard of that book. I have not read it. Yeah. So this was written way after To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm racist, and I just think that all books <laughs> that have a minority in them are the same. Obviously. Okay, we'll just end the show there. (laughs) All right, so see you later, guys. Tyler's canceled. We're going to move on now. (laughs) No, so um, that obviously that was the only book I knew Harper Lee for because that was the only book she published. Um, But in doing the research for this episode, I was surprised at how interesting she actually was. So without further ado, should we talk about the life of the, the woman who wrote one of the great American classics? Legitimately one of the greatest American classic books. Yeah. I, I think, genuinely. I think I think that's um, just a statement of fact at this point, yeah. given how many awards it's won and it's how influential it is. It's not about my opinion is. on it. It's about the fact that <laughs> it's influenced so much. Yep. So, yeah, so, let's get into Harper Lee. So, Nell Harper Lee was born April 28th, 1926, in Monroeville, Alabama. Alabama. 1926. (laughs) (laughs) She was the youngest of four. She had two older sisters, Alice and Louise, and a brother named Edwin. And they were all quite a bit older than her. Um, So, growing up, she kind of effectively didn't have siblings. Like, they didn't really play together because... There was such an age gap. Sure. Um, and her sister Alice in particular was kind of tasked with being a mother figure almost for the the younger kids and for her. So they they had like a very different relationship than you would expect for siblings. Um, her father was Amasa Coleman, A.C. Lee. Mm. Uh, he went by A.C. His yeah, uh, entire adult life. Amasa Coleman is weird. It's a it's weird a, name. It's a fancy sounding name. Um, <laughs> and he he was a lawyer, but he came from humble beginnings and had worked numerous um, odd jobs and took up law later in life. Um, he was also an old dad by the time she was born. I think he was like in his mid to late 40s. Ooh. Um, yeah. I mean. And that's definitely reflected in To Kill a Mockingbird, too. Like, it's uh, Atticus Finch is it's well known that he's based on her dad. And it's like literally he's a lawyer and he has his daughter Scout when he's 47 in the book. So it's like she really ripped off her dad here. (laughs) But yeah, yeah. there's a lot of uh, To Kill a Mockingbird that is very much like 
is this just an autobiography? Right. Like, what is happening? <laughs> she uh, she really leaned on her her hometown and her family and acquaintances for for that book. Um, and her her mother was Frances Cunningham Finch. Uh, who had been known as a gentle soul, but by the time Nell was born, she was actually exhibiting signs of bipolar disorder or manic depression. Mm. Uh, at the time, people just called it a nervous disorder. Right. Um, you know, it's that we don't really know what's wrong. So she just has a nervous <laughs> disorder. Yeah, um, like uh, tuberculosis was consumption. Yeah, right. Yeah, what and, is that? We don't know, but if you cough up blood, you've got it. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not really sure, like, what the exact symptoms of this were. I know um, Nell's best friend and neighbor growing up was Truman Persons, who would later go on to become the famous author Truman Capote. Uh, And he caricatured her mom in a story when he was 10 as a, quote, fat widow whose only hobbies were knitting by the window and reporting kids to their mothers anytime they annoyed her. So he probably had one bad experience with this woman and it stayed with him forever. Yeah, it definitely scarred him. Um, But Mr. Lee would send Frances on long vacations in the summer with a friend to basically get her out of the house. Mm. Uh, And during that time, he would also send Nell to stay with her aunt because apparently it was too much for him to to take care of her while Frances was away. So basically her mom deprived Nell of approval and affection, and she just didn't really know what it was like to have a mom. Yeah. Um, she did have a maid named Hattie Bell Clausel, and this was one of the people who took care of Nell most often. Um, she lived in a community called Clausel, which I'm assuming like she was part of the founding family or something. I'm not sure why the name is the same as her last name. Maybe it's like Leonardo da Vinci. Like, yeah, it's <laughs> where you're from. Oh, maybe, maybe. That would make a lot of sense, because um, Claus Clausel was basically the the black section of Monroeville um, during, you know, early twentieth century um, Alabama times. Like they had the very segregated neighborhoods. Um, and from a young age, Nell was scrappy and had a smart mouth. Um, she was known as a quote fearsome stomach puncher, foot stomper, and hair puller who could talk mean like a boy. She mostly played with the boys, especially Truman, who was two years older than her. And she was actually a lot tougher than him and defended him in fights sometimes. Um, He wasn't like as strong or as scrappy. And he was often made a target because during the Great Depression, when everyone was poor, his aunt, she owned like a clothing store or something and would give him nice clothes. And he was Um, he was pretty flamboyant even as a kid. Yes. He would show off uh, his nice clothes. And yeah, so if, then the other poor kids are like, okay, we're going to beat you up then. Yeah. Oh, hey, you got nice clothes? How about some dirt in your face? <laughs> yeah, but luckily he had Nell on his side, who was um, Dirty. very much a tomboy. Fighting. and yeah, Punching dudes <laughs> in the stomach and kicking them in the crotch. I respect it, man. Yeah. <laughs> she also beat everyone up in the classroom, too. She had a wide vocabulary thanks to her dad. Uh, she also questioned teachers, so she wasn't, like, a typical good student. She would get smart with them. Uh, she was very anti-authoritarian. She hated conformity, and she was often bored by school. I am in love with this girl right now. <laughs> I want this to be my daughter. 
Oh, so I don't bad. know if I do. She sounds like a, a bit of a handful, but I think she loved her dad, so yeah, she was exactly. probably great for him. You have to you have to learn how to like maneuver it so that she doesn't use it on you. <laughs> like make her love you enough that she's like, oh, I don't treat dad like that. I treat dumbasses like that. <laughs> my dad's smart and great. Yeah. Only my teachers are worthy of my scorn. <laughs> <laughs> So Nell and Truman were basically inseparable growing up because, like I mentioned, her her siblings were a lot older than her. She didn't really have them to hang out with. And one of the things I thought was um, fitting was they loved the Sherlock Holmes series when they were little. Mm -hmm. And when they would play with um, her other cousins, Truman would be Sherlock. She would be Dr. Watson. And her cousin, um, whose name I'm spacing on, would often be relegated to playing Moriarty. Classic. So, yeah. Um, One of the things that she would later write about her childhood was we lived in our imaginations Um, growing up in the Great Depression. Like, obviously, they didn't have a lot of money to go do things. So it really created an environment in which they were reliant on scenarios that they could, like, make up in their heads and and play outside and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that time I was when I was a kid and we didn't really have TV. So I went outside and I was a ninja and I would go into the woods uh, outside of my apartment complex. And now I'm an adult and I'm like, why the fuck did you let me run off (laughs) into the goddamn woods with a plastic sword? No. Terrible it's so parents. much better for kids. Like when I was a kid, my neighbors and I, we would play uh, Harry Potter and we would find like things outside and crush them up and make potions ingredients. Oh, no. <laughs> like it was so much more fun. And I think kids these days are very much deprived of that. <laughs> oh, OK. Old lady. Kids. I know. Kids these days. But no, like playing a game on a cell phone is not the same as having to invent your own game. So no, they're I think just inventing their own apps, Hannah. <laughs> they're not inventing their own apps. They're just scrolling. No 5-year-old is inventing an app. My son is obsessed with my phone. And I think honestly it comes from the fact that we're as a culture we're obsessed with our phones. Like he sees me staring at my phone all the time. Gotta cut that out. (laughs) Exactly. So he goes, oh, that's the thing that daddy loves. I also want to love that thing. And I've noticed that. And so I've actively been like, all right, I need to put my phone away when I'm around him so that I'm not always playing magic, watching TikTok. You know, I I do a lot of little designs for things here and there on my phone um, because I don't want to get up off my couch and go to my computer. And so it's like I... I'm constantly on it, and I have to be like, okay, he he's obsessed with this thing because I am. So he's a reflection of me. Yeah. It's, well, it's good that you're aware of that because yeah, so now I think I, that's at, a huge hurdle. At seven months old, I just stick him outside. I'm like, <laughs> be like, go play in the woods. Here's yeah. a plastic sword. Here's a plastic go sword. Go be like a Nelly. <laughs> So one of the things I thought was interesting was that even when they were little kids, like Truman was a little instigator. Uh, He really 
pushed boundaries and like would try to manipulate Nell. He'd try to make her jealous by like hanging out more with somebody else and just trying to get a rise out of her. Um, and I feel like we'll have to do an episode on Truman Capote at some point. Uh, cause I'd like to know more about where that came from. I know he had kind of like a, a difficult childhood. His parents were divorced and they'd basically stuck him with a different relative in yeah. Monroeville. Yeah. And his dad, it sounded like was a family. He wasn't living with his mom or dad. Yeah, and his dad was, like, an alcoholic or something, and everybody around town kind of knew it. So he definitely had, like, a troubled childhood, but would take that out on on Nell throughout their lives in some, like, kind of sketchy ways. Um, But, yeah, so even as a kid. But luckily, Nell was, like, so so strong-willed that she wouldn't really let him get under her skin. Sure. Um. And then AC gave Nell and Truman a typewriter when they were both in elementary school. They both already dreamed of becoming writers, like the authors of their favorite books. Um, So that was a very formative moment for her. Um, Their friendship was interrupted in the mid-1930s when Truman's mom abruptly showed up and took uh, Truman to live with her and her new husband, Joseph Capote, in New York City. So after that, uh, Nell pretty much only saw him during the summers. Mm. Um, And then, yeah, just kind of like looking at Monroeville as a town, it's very obvious if you've read To Kill a Mockingbird how much of the setting um, in that story reflects Monroeville. Um, oh, I think it's called Maycomb is the fictional name that she gives it in the, in the book, Maycomb, Alabama. Yeah. Um, but like down to the Boo Radley house, like it is based on Monroeville. Monroeville had this like ramshackle dark house that children were afraid to walk by. Uh, the owner had these two beautiful daughters who apparently left the house during the day, but he also had a son who never left home and who, like, people just never... He was almost like a ghost or something. Jeez. Yeah. So, very... It's, like, an interesting setting for someone growing up in, and you could see how that would give you plenty of fodder for a story later on. Absolutely. And, like, to a point where people read this book and then they wanted to make a movie out of it, and it got to a point where they went to um, Monroeville and they're like, yeah, this isn't enough like make them to <laughs> film here because it's changed too much since she was a kid. Oh. You know, this was, I mean, we're talking about the, the 30s, uh, Monroeville, and this is Monroeville in the 60s or 70s or whatever when they're making the film. It's changed in 30 years. Just think mm-hmm. about Camby. Think about how much Camby's changed since 1992. Camby has changed so much even since I moved, and that's right. been like a year and a half. It's a small town, and it's changing, and there's a shit ton of people who are who hate how much it's changing. Um, some of us are like, no, this is all for the good of the town. But um, so, like, when they came and they're like, oh, we let's go film at the place where she basis on they're like no it doesn't look enough like what she described they had to go find another town that was um as um old looking and they couldn't they're like there's just no town that looks the way that she describes so they had to basically build a town in hollywood um that represented uh monroeville yeah like this little time capsule basically yeah um, 
And then just going back to her dad, like AC was very much the inspiration for Atticus Finch, even when she was a kid. Um, He had very liberal values about racial issues during her formative years and had at least one run in with the KKK. Um, In the biography I read, which was Mockingbird, a portrait of Harper Lee by Charles Shields, you know, he he acknowledges that there's a lot of different stories from people who knew her in her childhood. So it's hard to say exactly what his encounters with the KKK were like. Um, like one person told it as basically they were doing a parade through Monroeville and he went they were getting like pretty rowdy and he went out and talked to them and was like, yo, like tamp it down. You're freaking people out. Um, and then in another version, it was like they showed up at Halloween because they heard like um, some African-American kids were in costume at this party and they like grabbed a kid and um, AC put a stop to that was like, hey, you guys just like scared the shit out of this little boy for your stupid ideas. Get out of here. Yeah. So either way, he he definitely was more outspoken than most people. Sure. Um, but he wasn't any saint by modern standards. So from 21st century perspective, like he was still very... Um, behind the behind he's behind our times he still believed that racial segregation was the natural order of things so people who are trying to look at Atticus Finch or AC Lee as like the paragon of racial justice would probably be surprised by some of his ideas yeah absolutely there's there are people that I've talked to today that still hold to some of those ideas like I've worked, I've worked with them and had not arguments because there's no point in arguing with people like that, but discussions to understand. And they're like they they believe that races should not mix. And the reason why there are um, homosexuals and mentally challenged people is because races have mixed what yeah you live in oregon my dude how are you finding these people (laughs) uh oregon's very divided i don't i mean i don't know what kind of oregon you were living in but i live in the sticks so i feel like i should have met some of these people portland is not the same as estacada it's not the same as uh (laughs) malala like there are some places out out here where there are some very interesting ideas and ideals that are held on to um, and I have worked with them. <laughs> so, wow. I, I mean, I, and you know, I don't say that they're bad people. I also don't think they're the best people I've ever met. So, um, you know, you, you'd, you'd be surprised. Well, you know, um, maybe they have a lot in common with, uh, AC Lee then, Yeah, you know, not the worst like people, but not the most, uh progressive or enlightened. (laughs) Um, So Nell started high school in September of 1940. And at this time, the economy was finally back on track after years of the Great Depression. Uh, And then World War II started in December of 1941. And this really changed a lot. Um, Notably, her her brother Edwin dropped out of school and joined the army. Um, And then Nell had like two great influences in her young adult life, aside from her dad, obviously. Um, one of them was her high school English teacher, Ms. Watson, who introduced her to great literary works, particularly British literature. That was something she really enjoyed that Miss Watson yeah. taught her about. Um, but it's not clear if Miss Watson saw that Nell was like a, 
a young aspiring writer. Um, Nell had never published anything, even though her dad owned the Monroe Journal and could easily have published some of her stories in it. Like Truman had had several stories published through writing competitions as a kid. Um, So that's totally something she could have done. But it seems like Nell was very self-conscious of her personal essays, short stories and poems and really kept those like close to her chest and didn't share them with people. Sure. And then her other great. We're just going to put a pin in that. In that thought. Just, just, yeah, I'm going to bring, bring us back to that in a minute. Perfect. And then her other great influence was her sister, Alice, um, who had dropped out of college during the depression because of the cost, uh, and, and because she was needed to help raise her family basically. Um, but even though she dropped out of school at 18, she was appointed associate editor of the paper. So she's like this very ambitious young woman, Um, She raised her siblings while their dad joined the state legislature. And then Alice finally like moved away to Birmingham in 1937 to start a new life. But when AC's law partner died, she gave that up again. She enrolled in law school, passed the bar and then joined him at his firm. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, she's like, it seems like they had a very fraught relationship when they were younger because I think Alice resented having to be like the mother figure for her family which is totally reasonable and she thought that Nell got away with a lot because she was the the baby, the baby and that yeah. she kind of shirked responsibility um, but they would grow up to be extremely close and yeah. Alice is going to be a name that you hear hear again in this episode but just just the idea that you're like alright well I'm going to go live my life now uh, going to go to college for what I want to go to college for and do my life, you know, and oh, oh, what's that, Dad? Your your business partner died. Let me just go ahead and drop everything, <laughs> take one of the hardest tests in in America to take, and uh, pass it within a couple years, and totally shift my entire life to become that thing that that you were. Um, it just sh- goes to show how incredibly smart Alice is was. Like the fact that it does not matter what the fuck you put in front of her, she's going to achieve it and she's going to be good at it. Right. And AC was like very proud of of all of his daughters. But I think especially Alice, like people would talk about how impressive it was that she was a woman who had become a lawyer. And he was like, you know what? Like, I want to start this law firm. That's just me and my daughters like Lee, Lee and Lee. Yep. Um, So then in 1944, Nell graduated high school and enrolled at Huntington College, which was a girls' school in Montgomery. She had high school credit, so she skipped a semester. Um, So obviously she was smart, but what comes up a lot is that she was not socially, quote-unquote, sophisticated. She did not follow convention. She used ugly words, according to a dorm mate. So basically she swore like a sailor or like a lawyer, probably like her dad. (laughs) She did not follow convention. She um, she smoked a pipe instead of cigarettes, which were much more popular. She <laughs> wore jeans and shorts in the dorm, no makeup, and never curled her hair. The horror. Um, she skipped most formal social events. Uh, she seems to have even skipped yearbook photos for the clubs that she was in, like the Literary Honor Society, the Scribblers Club, and the Glee Club. So she was just, like, not concerned about making an effort for social things. Yeah. Uh, Her roommates actually kicked her out at the end of the first semester, Uh, uh, which I'm not really sure, 
like what she did that was so offensive to them. She she wasn't a bad person. I think the impression that you might get is that she was aloof and didn't care about other people, but she definitely did. She was very kind. Um, she would like if she saw that somebody was having a tough time, she would try to help them out. Uh, and she was also more popular other places on campus, like volleyball teams loved her because she was tall and really athletic from all those years of beating up boys on the playground. She was also known in class for her wit and humor. Like she was a funny lady. Um, And she was unpretentious, even though she came from a well-respected family that had a lot of money compared to other people. Sure. Uh, She she just didn't care about fitting in. Um, Who she was was not up for negotiation. So if you didn't like it, you could just hit the highway. You could frick off, dude. And she would say it in those words because she didn't care about being ladylike. Frickin' frick dude yourself (laughs) all the way up. (laughs) Yes, just like that. Yep. (laughs) She published occasional articles in the campus um, newspaper and at least two vignettes in the Prelude, which was the campus literary magazine. And in those two stories, like you can definitely see that she had already found the topic that she cared about. Um, So the first one, Nightmare, features a Huntingdon girl daydreaming about her childhood. And she gets like caught up in this dream where she's watching something happen through a crack in a fence. And then the girl is horrified and hears a sound that will haunt her the rest of her life. As she runs home and hides, she hears someone say, best hanging I've seen in 20 years. Now maybe they'll learn to behave themselves. So that's like a very short but impactful story. And I like the way that she kind of has the mystery going until the very end. It's almost like the lottery by Shirley Jackson, where like you've got this sense that something bad's going to happen. And then you find out in like the last few sentences, like, oh, shit, they just hung somebody. Um, And then her second one, A Wink at Justice, is a kind of very clear precursor to To Kill a Mockingbird. It features a, a wise judge with many of her dad's same mannerisms deciding a case um, with a bunch of African-American men who were arrested for gambling. And basically, like, the judge orders the men to turn their hands palms up and inspects each one. Then he says to three of them, you can go. And to the other five, he says 60 days and then dismisses court. And then at the end of the story, the unnamed narrator asks how he decided this case. He was like, because it does not seem apparent. And the judge says um, he looked at their hands and the ones who had corns on them, he let go because they work in the fields and probably have a bunch of children to support. It was the ones with soft, smooth hands I was after. They're the ones who gamble professionally. So in that you're seeing like, obviously this is a judge, a courtroom type drama um, in a much shorter form. So you can definitely see hints at To Kill a Mockingbird there. Uh, For her sophomore year, she transferred to the University of Alabama at Tuscaloosa. And I'm not sure, like, if this was because she just wasn't really fitting in. Yeah, Tuscaloosa. Tuscaloosa. Um, Come on down, get yourself a sassabarilla at Tuscaloosa. (laughs) You're too good at that. She would have had to transfer eventually since Huntingdon didn't have a law school and she was planning to go to law school. So she just did it a little bit early. What could have possibly been the encouragement for her to go to law school? Gee golly, I don't know. 
Jeez. It's not like her favorite person in the world and her second favorite person in the world were both lawyers. And she obviously likes to argue with people and debate and challenge. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it, it sounds like she would have been a good lawyer. I think she would have. Um, yeah. So here she is in the fall of 1945, and this blew my mind. She joined Chi Omega, the sorority. I was like, if anybody seems less like a sorority girl, it's Nell Harper Lee. Yeah, seriously. Um, so yeah, I don't really Woo! know what possessed her to go do out that. And write a book, bitch. <laughs> I don't know how they, like, accepted her either. Um, She just, it seems so out of place. And she was still described as a loner. Most of her sorority sisters thought she was a grad student because she acted, like, so old and studious. Man, Um, I feel like, I feel like this is the setup for, like, a college age um, movie or something. Yeah, like, this quiet girl is bound to be a published author. Yeah, but and when it would she seem like finds her new when she shows up at her new fraternity sorority, everyone is taken by surprise. <laughs> See, and if you pitch it that way, it sounds ludicrous. It's like, oh, this is such a dumb idea, but that's really like what happened. What is what's the name of this what's the name of this movie that I uh, this is going to be the t-shirt Oh my gosh, you're the title guy. I can't. Um, <laughs> God damn. Um, <laughs> I'm going to think about it. I'm going to think about it because this is too good. I got to okay. create a poster for this movie that is going to be based off of Harper Lee's time in uh, Kyo. <laughs> in in uh, Chai Omega. I think it's Kai Omega because I think I we had this sorority at my college and I think I said Chai Omega and they made fun of me. They were like, it's not like the T. And I was like, okay, well, who cares? To Chai Omega Mockingbird. Oh, I think you're getting somewhere. I'm going to keep thinking about this. You keep laying down the facts. This is what I'm doing. So members of other sororities actually made fun of her behind her back. It seemed very... It, it's like high school bullying or like petty drama like that. Um, but she was totally oblivious to it or like at least didn't act like she noticed. She basically had only one good friend in her house who was Sylvia Parnell, who was also from, from Monroeville and I guess had a risque sense of humor. So that's probably why they got along. Uh, She finally found her people in the student publication section of the university. She wrote for the Rammer Jammer Humor Magazine, which I feel like that name sounds very inappropriate, but okay. (laughs) Rammer Jammer. (laughs) I hardly know her. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But it was the Humor Magazine, so maybe they poked fun at that themselves. And then she stayed on campus the summer after her sophomore year because she knew the student newspaper would need writers. Um, They had been full previously, so she couldn't get a job there. And while she was writing for the newspaper, she got a humorous column called The Caustic Comment, which often addressed social issues, including racism. Um, So, yeah. And then her junior year, she was appointed editor-in-chief of the Rammer Jammer. (laughs) Chief Rammer. Nice. She also enrolled in law school that year, um, but she 
I don't think she was ever really passionate about law. Uh, when she went home for her brother's wedding over a school break, she was really torn about the direction she wanted her life to take. She didn't like law school. She wanted to be a writer, uh, but she decided to keep at it. And she was one of a very few women in law school at that time. Uh, apparently, they were all a very tenacious bunch, though, and none of them flunked out while she was in law school. Um, so they were really, like, proving their mettle to some professors who didn't necessarily think they belonged there. Um, and then late in his life, Truman kind of publicized this rumor that Nell had a dramatic love affair with a professor <gasps> in college that didn't end well. Um, he said she was, like, really crushed by it. But another acquaintance who knew her in college said that she had heard the rumor, too, but thought it was a one-sided crush. So, like, nothing actually happened. Wait, one-sided on her side? Or on it? Nell's side. Oh, okay. Yeah, like, kind of um, unrequited love, but it, not it, returned. It is very interesting that you bring it up, because I, I don't know anything about her love life in any way. This is the mm -hmm. first thing I've seen at all that might be true about her having love feelings. Well, yeah, I'm inclined to, to side with the acquaintance who thought it was one-sided because Truman uh, seems to have a habit of kind of overplaying the drama of things. No. Uh, yeah. And also, like, what a bad friend. He's just, like, starting all of these rumors about Nell. Uh, yeah, it's. I mean, it seems like he was always willing to um, say something to. He to was a gossip. It, yeah, to make some interest in yeah. himself so that he can make some money off of it. 100%. So the summer of 1948, Nell had the opportunity to study at Oxford through a student exchange that had been started to promote intercultural relations after World War II. Uh, she enrolled in 20th century literature. That was like her specialty track, but she could attend countless lectures outside of that. Um, the program had around 70 esteemed professionals who were giving seminars on all sorts of topics at the college. So, I mean, this is basically a huge deal. I don't think that there's anything comparable today where you can go to one seminar and have like 70 basically super, super famous and highly respected in their fields people giving lectures yeah um and uh, in the the biography i read um charles shields writes quote she walked the streets known to writers she admired and imagined herself in their company um so this was really a pivotal point for her she was in england where a lot of the the british literature that she so adored had been born out of and she was like no nope, i want to write uh, nice. And also, Truman had just published his first novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, that year. So her best friend, who growing up had wanted to be a writer with her and really kind of encouraged her to want to be an author as well, had finally gotten published. So this is just like the perfect storm. And on in winter break back in Monroeville that year, she told her dad that she was going to drop out, find a job and write. And of course, her dad was not pleased with this. Um not only was he dead set on her becoming a lawyer, but also, like, she literally had one semester left in school. Yeah. She was so close to graduating. Um, so he, and then she's he told. just like, nah, 
Yeah, she's like, no, I'm going to go live in New York and be a writer. And he told her he wouldn't subsidize a pack of daydreams. So basically, if she was going to do this, she was on her own financially. Um, So she moved back home uh, with one semester left of senior year. And then in early 1949, she packed up and moved to Manhattan. Uh, It was hard for her to sever ties with home, though. Her mom was really sick. I couldn't figure out with what... Um, But she was sick for several years and hospitalized finally around 1951. She died in June of that year when Nell was just 25 years old. Um, And then six weeks later, her brother Edwin died completely unexpectedly. So whereas her mom's death had been kind of drawn out and everyone saw it coming, uh, he was only 30 years old and just died of a brain hemorrhage. Oh, wow. Yeah. So this was like an extremely tragic and and difficult period in the Lee family's lives. Um, And then back in New York, she was juggling like a series of very unrewarding jobs. She worked as a waitress. She sold books in a bookstore. She worked for like a railroad company and then an airplane company um, and just had like all these different jobs. She wrote on the side and had completed several short stories by November of 1956. And then at this it, point... Um, it seems interesting the the fact that she's willing to do all these odd jobs, do all this crazy different stuff, but not willing to finish on a degree that could give her a steady job for her to do while she work while she writes yes but there was something that she said later in life that i think kind of explains that she i think she was asked to give advice to young writers or something and she told them basically you know do a boring job or something that's totally different from writing because if you do and i'm not like perfectly quoting this at all but the idea was that if you do a job where you have to write a lot you're going to use up all of your writing energy doing that and you won't want to be creative afterwards. And that I totally get. Like I have been in such a writing slump ever since becoming a full-time like journalist. Yeah. Yeah, I write all day long and it's just almost impossible for me to write outside of work. So maybe that's why loss law was not going to work for her. That's interesting. That's something I've never really thought about. I always figured, you know, if you're writing all day, then you're you're able to kind of put yourself in that frame of mind easier so that you can do what you can write what you want to write either around it, after it, before it sort of thing. I think it definitely depends on the person, too, because obviously there are many successful journalists who also write books. So. I just feel like for me, I can really relate to her perspective on that. Uh, I, I get it, though, too, because there's so many times as an indie author, you're trying to find the best way to promote yourself. And one of the things that comes up constantly is, oh, you should have a blog. And it's like, I don't want a blog. I don't want to have to write all of my ideas down for people to read them. A, I'm really bad at writing without proof. You know, like I need someone to proofread it. I need an editor, or else I'm gonna look like a like a third grade person <laughs> writing this. Um, and two, like I don't want to spend that time writing about something on a blog 
when I can spend that time writing about writing in the story I want to sell. Um, and so I think that's why podcasting is really interesting to me because I can just talk, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, it doesn't uh, really feel like writing. Yeah, it's not. I mean, if I really needed to, I could sit down and write something. But um, podcasting, it activates a different tar- kind of part of the brain. And it allows me to to kind of vocalize a lot of stuff without having to spend that time that I would writing my story to mm-hmm. achieve it. So um, I get that. I really do. Yeah. So she had kind of um, compiled a backlog of stories. And then in late 1956, her good friends Michael and Joy Brown uh, encouraged her to show her stories to an agent. Michael Brown was in the TV business, and so he pointed her towards someone he knew who was named Ann Williams. It turned out she dealt more with film rights, but Ann's husband, Maurice Crane, was a literary agent. And Crane really liked Nell and her work and suggested she try writing a novel since those were more marketable. So at this point, she had not written a novel ever. She was just short stories, essays, poems, that kind of stuff. Um, Nell had been living very frugally during her years in New York, um, because obviously it's very expensive to live in that city, uh, even back then. So when Christmas rolled around, the Browns suggested that they exchange kind of quirky bargain gifts. So basically she went to thrift shops and, and found stuff for them because they had plenty of money, but they knew that she didn't so they didn't want to like make it awkward Uh, but then they made it super awkward because when she presented her gifts the browns gave her an envelope and she opened it and it said you have one year off from your job to write whatever you please merry christmas so their christmas gift to her was they were going to pay all of her living expenses for a whole year yeah so that she could write which is one of the coolest greatest things i've ever heard of ever right the idea it's like a fairy tale first of all the browns it's not like she just like randomly met these people and then they're like hey here's uh you know a hundred thousand dollars it was like they she became ingratiated to them like they were her only friends at that point um and they they got to know her well enough to where they they realized that there was a talent that was being wasted by her not doing this mm-hmm. um and then yeah i mean that's that's every writer's dream come true right to have not only to not have to go to work which would be the greatest thing in the world right <laughs> but to have someone look at you and go we know that you if you have this time you're kind of you're going to produce something of quality work yeah, and it's just such a huge vote of confidence. It is. Like, it, it's it's something that every writer wants when they're starting that process. I am just now, I've been writing a book for 10 years. I've, I've written, I've, I've written um, a book that I published. I wrote that five, six years ago. I'm releasing the Penny Lich now. I've written for the Quillandia anthology. Um I have people who are constantly talking to me about writing stories and things. I'm just now starting to feel like, hey, maybe I'm kind of a good writer. Maybe I'm I'm good at this. Um, not that I'm good at storycraft. I know I'm good at storycraft. I can tell a story, but writing, like actually writing. Because I know what my flaws are. I know I can overcome those flaws for the most part. 
and or those flaws don't matter in the long run because I'm going to pay an editor to fix those things, right? <laughs> um, or at least point them out to me. And it's taken this long for me to realize, oh, I might actually be good at writing stories down. Um, and and so to have someone come along after a year or two and say, hey, uh, we're going to go ahead and just put $50,000 of our money into you because we know that you're going to be good at this. Like, yeah, that's insane. Yeah, I think she still didn't really think of herself as a good writer. She wouldn't. Um, of course she doesn't. Yeah, yeah. She was extremely modest. But um, with their vote of confidence, she started her new routine right away. She was not going to waste a single day of her year. Uh, she was out of bed late morning, coffee, and then write all day until as late as midnight sometimes. So she returned to Maurice Crane in January with another short story and the first 50 pages of a novel titled Go Set a Watchman. She dropped off 100 more pages the next week and then 50 pages a week through February. Mm. So she was just like writing up a storm. Yeah. Um, he liked it. Uh, they went back and forth re with revisions until about May. And then Crane suggested they change the title to Atticus. He didn't like the title. Um, so he thought Atticus would be better. And it was obviously after one of the main characters. And Nell agreed. And then they sent it out to publishers. Not wanting to waste any more time, she was already right back at work uh, writing another novel and gave Maurice Crane a, uh, 111 pages of that. It was called The Long Goodbye at the End of May. A few days later, though, a publisher called J.B. Lippincott called uh, Maurice and they wanted to meet with Nell. So this is like, you know, a couple weeks maybe after they'd sent out the book and already a publisher was calling. Yeah. That's, so they met that's with, how, you know, that's how it always goes. Oh my God. It's so ridiculous. It's so, it normally goes where you, you decide, okay, I'm going to be a writer within a year or two. There's going to be, you're going to have friends that pay for this your, was five years after she moved to new york so okay. she was there five for a years. long time five years still i've been doing it for 10 years so <laughs> i should have this happen twice now um i should have two different couples willing to pay for two years worth of my time <laughs> um you're gonna have people pay for your living expenses for a whole year and they're going to help you get an agent almost immediately before the book is even done and then you're going and then your agent is going to send that off and within a week or two you'll have um her first novel ever yeah like, she just learned how she's like lorna mcdougall's husband she just learned just how to write a novel lorna mcdougall's husband and <laughs> um i think i think at this point i'm i'm more angry at harper lee than i am <laughs> at lorna mcdougall's husband I think that's fair. Because <laughs> at least, I mean, but he did just be like, I'm going to go to a cabin and write in 30 days. And that pisses me off. <laughs> um, and then For those who are new to the show, Lorna McDougal's husband is Kazuo Ishiguro. Yeah, well, he's... We don't say his name here, though. <laughs> um, but and he won a fucking Nobel Peace Prize for his. Um, I don't know. I don't know who I like worse or at least at this point. 
She's kind well, of pissing me off, to be honest. Okay, you'll have other opportunities to decide. So she meets with the publishers, and basically they tell her they like the characters, but they think the story lacks plot. Um, so they're like, give it another stab. We want to see what you've got, like this show's promise. So Nell thought about it and went back and forth a few more times and eventually decided to center the plot around a crime, uh, taking inspiration from a 1930s rape trial in Monroeville. And so this was the plot that she gave the story and it worked and uh, Lippincott loved it. So in December of 1959, like right after she had turned in the final draft of um, this novel, Truman invited her to go with him to Holcomb, Kansas, where his New Yorker editor had assigned him to write about the effects of a quadruple murder on a small town. Now, Tyler, did you read or, or listen to anything about what they were doing there? Uh, just that they that she was helping him interview people. Yeah, so he basically took her along as a research assistant. Yeah. Um, and and the story there was, there was this family whose last name was Clutter. Um, the father was a successful farmer. And then one, one night, he, his wife, and two of their teenage children were brutally killed in their own home. And there were no suspects. So this was like a crime in a small town that completely, like, shocked and horrified everybody. Sure. So... Truman's supposed to write about it. He and Nell go down there, and they they met with Detective Alvin Dewey, who initially played tough with them and said he wouldn't help, and they could just attend the press conferences like all the other reporters. And they really had a tough couple of weeks trying to interview everyone in town. Nell was a huge help for that, um, because despite being kind of like... Not like shy or aloof, but, you know, she has this reputation already for not necessarily yeah. fitting in. Being an but outsider. She was, I yeah, mean, that, being an that outsider. Was the, the case with the sorority and with her roommates before in college, she's always been the outsider and someone who doesn't fit in with the social paradigms of how things work. Right. So I wouldn't have expected her to do that well in this, but it sounds like, you know, when she's tasked with interviewing people, she she really shines and she was approachable in a way that yeah, Truman wasn't. She was grounded. I mean, he mm -hmm. at this point Truman's become a lot more flamboyant and a lot more like, you know, I'm, he's pretty famous. I'm this big time guy and um, he's got his lifestyle that he's living and it wasn't really appreciated in this place they were going. Whereas mm -hmm. Nell is way more grounded and way more like, hey, I'm I'm just I'm just like you. I'm just a, I'm just a small town girl. Living in a lonely in, world. Living in a lonely world. <laughs> and I'm just trying to get down to the bottom of these here murders. Yep. And then they're like, well, we can get on board with that. And then they have the slowest interview ever. <laughs> yeah. So she was a huge help um, in, in Kansas with him. Um they also had like a couple major breakthroughs like the estate attorney for the family took them to the home where the murder had taken place oh. and Nell took like copious notes on everything she saw uh, she also figured out the that the family had a lot of problems um, the dad was horribly strict this huge perfectionist his wife was a wreck and emotionally abandoned her kids um, you know the, the son and the daughter were really struggling um, so she took notes on all of this uh, and then Truman didn't use any of it, really. He 
portrayed the family in the simplest, most idealized light in his novel that he his serialized novel that he would write after this, which was called In Cold Blood, Um, which like the argument that this biographer makes is when you're writing about a family who's the victim of a horrible murder, like sometimes it's just nice to paint them as these innocent victims or whatever, right. or like in the most sympathetic you, light you possible. Don't wanna, you don't want to just spit on their grave and, and yeah. make it worse. Whereas I think if he was writing that book this, like today, I think readers are much more receptive to kind of the complicated, yeah. true to life characters. Yeah, they want that twist of like, oh, this whole family was... Uh, brutally murdered and and we're gonna make you feel bad for him in the first episode and then at the first episode they're like but then the dad's a rapist and they're like oh <laughs> now i want to watch yeah i mean it, it obviously wasn't that dramatic but also like i don't know i disagree with truman's choice because i think you can be sympathetic for people who were murdered while also acknowledging that maybe there were some complicated family dynamics yeah there's a reason and that might make it more probably. sympathetic yeah um, Everyone's then, flawed. We all got problems. Yes. No one's perfect. No one's perfect. Uh, another one of their big breakthroughs was the estate attorney invited them to Christmas dinner because obviously he knew they were from out of town and probably didn't have anyone to hang out with. And that dinner was with Detective Dewey and his wife. And all of the couples got along fabulously and became lifelong friends. And after that, Dewey gave them all sorts of info he wasn't supposed to. Um, when the murderers were identified and caught, uh, Truman and Nell were like the first ones to hear it. He even let them look at the daughter's diary, uh, which seems super sketchy. And he kind of helped connect them to the killers. And Truman actually paid the killers $50 each for an interview when they were in jail, which adjusting for inflation is $500 each today. Yeah, he wants to get the scoop. It's going to sell his book. Uh, that's so... I don't know how the New Yorker does it, but I, in all of my journalism jobs and like in school and stuff, I thought the, the core value was you don't pay for interviews. And this is something that I run into like on the job. I'll be out trying to interview people, and every once in a while someone will be like, are you going to pay me? And I'm like, where the hell do people get this idea that you get paid to talk to reporters, uh, but apparently it's Truman Capote's fault. He started it, and everyone's been like, I heard that Truman Capote paid $500 <laughs> for his interviews, so I want $1,000. I'm like, God, journalism was totally different back then, because, like, $500, can I get that kind of budget? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Well, it probably came out of his own pocket, right? Um, no, he was expensing everything. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, that paid... $500, that was um, for a hotel. Yeah, no, he. I think he paid for a lot of interviews because on his expense sheet, he had, like, you know, rental car, hotel room, food, that kind of stuff. And then he had, like, $1,000 of 1940s or 50s or whatever decade this is money that was just unaccounted for. Oh, my God. So he was doing some sketchy shit. <laughs> I'm a white man. You're going to ask me what I'm spending money on? Come on. <laughs> so in mid-January, um, they go back to New York. Uh, Nell had galleys of Mockingbird to proofread at that point. Um, and then they went back to Kansas in March for the trial. 
It was short, and both men were sentenced to hang. So, nice. July 11th, 1960, To Kill a Mockingbird is published. Nell did not think it would do well. She basically only hoped for a little public encouragement for her first novel. Yeah. Um, and if people didn't like it, she hoped it would die a quick death and just fade from from people's memories. Uh, but the book was already getting professional praise before it was even released. And then it hit the New York Times top 10 uh, bestsellers immediately. Uh, the subject matter really tapped into social concerns of the time, uh, the, the appeal of life in simpler pre-Cold War era times, uh, America's desire to paint itself as justice loving. Those were big themes. And it became the ruler that all following books with racial, racial themes would be measured against in the years that followed. Nell, of course, was deliriously happy uh, as she saw her gamble leaving Alabama had paid off. She was meant to be a writer. And the book launched her into stardom. She was getting... (laughs) She was meant to be a writer. She was meant to be a writer. When you have everything given to you. (laughs) Anybody can be a writer when it's all given to you. Um, So she was basically a national or even international celebrity now she was getting so much fan mail and some hate mail from like people who did not like her racial justice attitudes in the books of course yeah she had interview upon interview with the press uh she had old acquaintances who knew her from you know monroeville or or from college who were writing about her in the press which must have been super weird to see other people like sharing stories about you yeah especially ones that weren't true yeah and so possibly as a result of this, she spent a lot of time back in Monroeville, kind of hiding out from the spotlight. And then on May 2nd, 1961, the book was still on the bestseller list, and she learned that she would be receiving the Pulitzer Prize. The Pulitzer Prize is like the biggest deal of all the deals for yeah, writing. What, what is the Pulitzer Prize? What, uh, what is it? It's this big ass award. Uh, they have it for books. They have it for journalism. I don't. There's got to be other categories that they have it for too. It's not like the Nobel Peace Prize, which is, um, you know, it goes on for for science and other um, categories like that. I think the Pulitzer is mostly relegated to written form. Sure. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's what everyone aspires to. Yeah, and I mean when when you're go ahead when you go ahead and just go through life with people just giving you everything, why not? <laughs> why also, not the Pulitzer Prize? Be given the greatest thing that you can be given as a writer. So on your first novel that you ever wrote, that you somebody paid you a whole year's worth of time to go ahead and do, <laughs> and then the agent was handed to you, and then the publisher even said, "Hey, why don't you go ahead and try again? It'll be fine." Instead yeah. Of you outright. <laughs> no, no, that totally makes sense that that. Would I happen. think Stephen King, with his like list of rejection letters nailed to his attic, is probably like so furious about this. Yeah, it's stupid. <laughs> uh, the more we talk about her, the more pissed off I'm getting. Genuinely, <laughs> like, like, yeah, it, To Kill a Mockingbird is great, but she got paid to write it. She got paid to write it. Pay me to write a book, and I can write something just as good. Maybe not. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. <laughs> Pay me to write it, and I can write a book. 
<laughs> Scaling it down a bit. Okay. I just, so, uh, I know, like, the I don't know. It, I do think that there was a little bit of lightning in the bottle with the situation because she did write about something that was so prevalent at that time. Right? Yeah. Like, she definitely benefited from the time. Like, she, she, she published this right as the civil rights movement was starting. Right. And to a point where it's like, how do I put this? The civil rights movement was still way more unified at that point. Nowadays, with all of the different movements that are happening, it's so disorganized. People are so divided, even within their own groups of, of union, that you can have one book come out and all these different people are going to have all these different takes and they're it's it's if they can not like it it gives them more of a platform to to speak their own opinions and what they yeah need like now it's more you get more prestige for being against something than yeah. being for it exactly but back then it was like finally this book is being written by a white person that's calling out white supremacy finally we have a, a book that is showing the injustice of uh, black people's lives in America, in South America. It's not South America. <laughs> South Southern America. America. Um, you know, like it's it was it was something that was needed and well accepted at that time for the civil rights because they were still unified in what we want is this. This is what we want to have a voice. Um, mm -hmm. And now everyone has a voice, and it's better if you don't like something. So I think that if this came out today, it would be, honestly, I think it would be torn apart. Yeah, I I think you are probably correct about that. Um, so giving you more reason to hate her, uh, <laughs> after winning the, the Pulitzer, the movie was announced uh, with actor Gregory Peck to star as Atticus Finch. He was like hot shit back then. Uh, and he toured Monroeville to try to meet like the real um, AC Lee and get a sense for kind of who he was playing, basically. Caused quite the stir in town. Uh, he and Nell also became really good friends. Uh, I think, I can't remember who it was, but somebody later wrote that like he worshipped her. If she walked into a room, he would like immediately get up and go talk to her. Yeah. Uh, so he really respected her. Uh, Nell and the publishers helped choose Horton Foote to write the screenplay. And I think it's interesting that while he did make some pretty big changes to the story, Nell later praised the screenplay and said, quote, if the if the integrity of a film adaptation is measured by the degree to which the novelist's intent is preserved, Mr. Foote's screenplay should be studied as a classic. So she like she was not. Um, rigid or possessive about the way that her story should be adapted to the screen, which I think is really good if you want to, you know, be satisfied by a movie as a writer and as a reader. Like, yeah. movies and film and books are two totally different mediums. Yeah. And what works in a book might not work in a film. So I, I love that she respected that. I mean, you, but on the opposite end, you look at someone like Neil Gaiman, who, like, Sandman is out on Netflix. Have you watched it? Yeah, did we not talk about this in the chill episode? I feel like maybe we did. I don't know. Maybe, yeah, I did watch all of it. I, it was meh for me. 
but the point was he he wrote that right he wrote the script the teleplay for it and be, he is so into i want to t- if it's going to be adapted it's going to be my story mm-hmm. um so it's it's interesting that that's two different ways like yeah take it do whatever you want to do with it or if you're going to adapt it i'm writing it yeah which is interesting because he actually changed a lot of stuff from yeah. the comic books too so yeah, he did. Yeah, there's I there's Thank a lot God, to unpack too, there. The diner scene would have been really fucked up. Oh really? I haven't read the the comic books. Okay. I have. <laughs> we'll talk about that at another time. So, outside of the whole film experience, um, Nell and Truman's relationship was really starting to get strained. Uh, she had won a Pulitzer, and he never would. She was so much more famous than him. Um, But she always tried to direct attention back to him and how he'd encouraged her as a writer. Like, by all accounts, it seems like she was a really good friend to him Um, and was, like, perceptive of how he kind of felt like he was being outshined. Uh, In January of 1962, sales of the book were approaching 4.5 million. That is huge. That would be beyond what any modern author could really hope for. Tyler's going to try to figure out how much money she was making. I don't know, but she was she was uh, loaded. Let's say she makes $2 off of each one, right? That's $9 million. Yeah. She, she makes was, $2 off of each book. That's $9 million. She was incredibly wealthy, and her sister Alice became her lawyer, obviously, and obviously. basically her manager. She fielded interview requests for her sister and set up tax shelters for her book and movie income so they could try to keep as much of the money for, for Harper. Um, and then in April of 1962, A.C. Lee died at the age of 82, Uh, The obituary in the local paper called for more men like him, and they specifically connected him to Atticus Finch, too, from the book. Uh, The obituary called for men like that to speak up in the fight for civil rights. Um, Just was very, uh, praised him a lot. Uh, Mid-1963, the publicity from the film finally ended and Nell could theoretically return to writing as much as she liked. In some of the movie interviews, she'd expressed a desire to write more novels, in the vein of Mockingbird. And she even said, quote, all I want is to be the Jane Austen of South Alabama. And then it was silence. Then it was silence. Um, But that's huge. The Jane Austen of South Alabama. She really wanted to kind of like represent her, her people and her, her home in literature. Wait, that's full English. Wait, I can't. Yeah. I cannot do a southern accent pretending to do an English thing because it just ends up being English because southern is so close to English. That's, yeah, that's a little too accent I'm just a small town lawyer, but I do declare that Elizabeth <laughs> Bennett is the most adorable, precocious. Uh, I don't. I don't know. I was try. I was trying there, and it just wasn't working. Oh, you know that's what? Okay. That's gonna be the name of the sorority sister movie, though. Jane Austen of Alabama. 
<laughs> the Jane Austen Why are you doing like wrestling music or something? No, because I imagine her walking in a parade with all of her sorority sisters, and they're like, they got like billy clubs in their hands. Oh my god! Oh no, they're just like badass. She's like taught them how to be badass. She's taught them how to fight. We got to get back to the facts here. So, as you mentioned, like at this point. She's, she made this broad declaration and then went silent. Um, she stopped granting interviews. She thought they were redundant because she'd already talked about Mockingbird so much. And she was becoming very aware that people were waiting on a second novel five years after she'd published her first. Um, she, she was going a long time now without a new novel. One of the last ever interviews she did was with a young journalist from the South named Dan Keith, and he wrote a pretty good profile about her in which she said she, in which he wrote that Harper was, quote, not a recluse. And that was the first time that recluse had been used in conjunction with her name. Mm. Uh, but obviously this would become one of the most prevalent words used to describe her in the decades that followed. Uh in November of 1965, she received her copy of In Cold Blood, that book that she helped Truman research in, in Kansas, and she found it dedicated to her and Truman's boyfriend. Yep. She was furious that her contribution to the book wasn't even mentioned in the acknowledgement section. Yeah, it's, so like, not that, it's not that this was dedicated to her and that was shared. It was the fact that it all she got was a was, dedication. was half a dedication. Yeah. He didn't say, like, thanks, Nell, for spending hundreds of hours in Kansas over Christmas with me interviewing people about a murder. Like, yeah. No. Thanks, Nell, for being the one that people could talk to because I'm too much of a sycophant for people to be able to stand. <laughs> yep. He just he didn't give her any credit. Um, but you're famous, and... so I don't need to do that. Because, oh, it's just uh, such a dick move. It is. Although... To be completely honest, to be fair, if I was Truman, I would probably be the same way. Because she literally got handed everything. Why does she need the accolades for something else? She'll just go. She did the work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but she. Whatever. Yeah. No. That's the curse. You do the work, you don't get it. I can see with. I, I see Truman's side of things. Like, yes, that would be really hard for me. Um, that's one of the reasons wh- why I've always, like, been pretty adamant that I don't want to date other journalists because <laughs> I know me. And I'm like, if my boyfriend is a better journalist than me, that's a better journalist than me. That's going to make me feel really insecure. So I can totally see where he's coming from. But still, like, just a really shitty f- friend, basically. Which is crazy because... Talon is a very good writer. I know. Like, really, he's treading on thin ice here. <laughs> yeah, he is. Like, this this Halloween, you might have to break up with him after he submits a story. Cause... Be like, God damn it, you did too good <gasps> again. <laughs> I wanted to stay yeah. with you, Talon, but you're just too talented. Talon. <laughs> I feel like I've made that joke before. I make that joke like on a monthly basis and he very kindly uh, smiles and laughs a little (laughs) like he hasn't heard it so many times. But anyway, so so this in cold blood dedication fiasco was kind of like 
the final straw. Yeah. Uh, a year later, Truman threw this huge black and white ball that was flush with celebrities. He invited Nell, uh, but she did not attend. <gasps> so their friendship was really on the rocks. Um, and then she kind of kept riding the coattails of To Kill a Mockingbird. In 1966, she was appointed by President LBJ to the National Council on the Arts. Uh, her friend Gregory Peck, as well as author John Steinbeck, were among the artists also on the board. Basically, their job was to re- review grant proposals and advise the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, then in April of 1970, her agent, Maurice Crane, died after a long battle with cancer. There was some speculation over whether he and Nell were just friends or if they had an emotional affair. Um, emotional affair? Yeah. Come on. So, I don't know. This author never really hints at any sort of sexual relationships with, with Nell. Right. Um, but he does write that Maurice was much more than just an agent to her. He was the first person she saw after waking up from surgery when she had injured her hand at one point. He took care of her while she was recovering. He was married, by the way, to Ann Williams. Oh, BT dubs, he was yeah. taken. Got it. He, he called her once a week and even went to Alabama to meet her extended family. Oh. So this is not your typical agent. A trip uh, down south, perhaps? <laughs> Going downtown. Oh, no. Okay. So Truman, that gossipy bitch, was also (laughs) suspicious of their relationship. Uh, He wrote to the Deweys, Detective Alvin Dewey and his wife, that he thought Nell was, quote, unhappily in love with a man impossible to marry. Yeah. Well, uh, Truman was also a bitch earlier in college years, so he's unreliable. (laughs) He is an unreliable source, but... Yeah, so we don't know if they had any sort of emotional relationship or beyond, like, their friendship. Either way, his death was incredibly hard on her. Her social circle was getting smaller and smaller. Sightings of her were rare in the 70s and 80s. She typically spent her winters in Alabama and summers in New York City, although Truman, again, said in an interview that he didn't know why she bothered to live in the city because she never goes out. So God. he's such a bad friend. He is a dick. Uh, Truman died in 1984 at the home of Johnny Carson's ex-wife, who he was very good friends with. What? Um, he uh, his cause of death was listed as liver disease complicated by phlebitis and multiple drug intoxication. So that was another thing that really strained their relationship later on was he was. Uh, severely alcoholic and drugs. did a lot of drugs. Nice. Um, so by the time he died, uh, Nell had not seen him very much, but I'm sure this was also extremely hard on her. Yeah, then, I mean, it, when you when you got uh, a friend like Truman, it's uh, it's gonna be strained. <laughs> yeah. When you're given everything. It's going to be strained. Well, her her later career was very strained as well. She started writing a book sometime in the 80s called The Reverend, which was based on a series of murders in Alabama. And the lawyer from the case, she had like talked with a lot about the book. He was really excited about it. And for years, Nell kept telling him that she was really close. She even told him that the galleys were at the publisher's. This was a straight-up lie. Um, the, the book was never with the publishers. And in 1984, the lawyer said, quote, she's fighting a battle between the book and a bottle of scotch, and the scotch is winning. 
So I'm not sure if she had problems with alcohol, but that stood out to me a lot. Mm. Uh, Her friends started to caution people not to bring up writing with her because she was really sensitive about it. Um, And yeah, public sightings outside of Monroeville became kind of the stuff of legends. She was most receptive to requests to visit schools. Um, She really encouraged young people. But she answered all interview requests with either a no or a hell no. Right. She did not want to talk to the press. She doesn't really seem to have been reclusive around her hometown. I think that was a misconception for me going into it. I thought she basically pulled like a Shirley Jackson and was agoraphobic and wouldn't go outside. Um, But that's not true. She and Alice always ate breakfast at the same diner. Uh, They ran errands routinely. Like she was out and about in Monroeville. They were just specific about what they did. And they Mm -hmm. were really, really smart. And this is where a lot of what I've been reading comes in. Um, because the author of it spends more time talking about herself than the fucking subject of the book. It's Is the cool. author Truman Capote? <gasps> no, it's uh, it's someone who ended up being the neighbor of Alice and Harper, and they, and basically they, um, the author was a journalist who came in and kind of just slowly started to get to know them. And she learned about how they did things and and they would like they would have an entire town of people who could warn them about who's in town asking about them. Mm-hmm. Like you would have you'd have the um, reverend, I can't remember what his name is, who was really good friends with with the the um, sisters and he would like go talk to whoever's been asking around town about him and he'd get a feel for who they are and then he'd go report back to the sisters and be like oh yeah you don't want to talk to this person they're just trying to get this from you or like hey you might give this person a chance because they're you know genuinely just trying to learn more or whatever so like and they had a few people in town that would do that and you wouldn't know if you're a journalist and you're investigating you just go to town you're like oh you know do you know where the uh Harper Lee is is hanging out and they're like oh uh, yeah maybe she's done some stuff what are you looking for and then they spill the beans to this person and that person's like oh let me just send a fax over to Alice Lee because (laughs) she's at her office every day even though she's 90 fucking years old and can't hear and they fax her and like hey this person's looking for you stay away and then Alice goes and tells Harper and Harper's like "All right, I'm going to stay inside not come out like it was a whole system. They yeah, they had recluses. a whole town yeah. running interference for them. They weren't recluses. They were they were so well liked that people would look out for them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting that she was so well liked in the town because she she was so fiercely protective of her intellectual property um, that she even like sued a local museum in 2013, arguing that it infringed on her trademark by selling Mockingbird-themed T-shirts and trinkets. Wow. Um, she forbade TV crews from filming the town's annual Mockingbird play yeah. that they put on. Um, so some things like that stood out to me as like, I I could see how that would not go over well, but it does seem like you said, like the town really loved her. Um, And yeah, she, she was super annoyed by um, the fact that Monroeville was turning into a mockingbird tourist attraction, uh, particularly annoyed by tourists stopping in front of her house, which like, yeah, 
that would be so so obnoxious yeah she has to like in everything she has to keep all of these places that she goes a secret like what mm-hmm. diner she went to uh, whose house she would go and visit on certain days her fishing hole she'd have to keep a secret on on where she went fishing because if she didn't it would get leaked out to the press and then fans and people who want to catch her in in the wild go to these places and wait for her mm-hmm. and it's like she can't she can't have a moment's peace and it really goes to show that she i mean yeah she was handed everything but at the same time, she wasn't prepared for it. it. It it came out of the blue. Most people, they write a book or two and they get a little bit of a following. They get a little bit more famous and they can deal with that level at that time. And then it's more and more and more and you and you get used to it. I mean, we're talking about a woman who over the course of like six, seven years went from be, being in college to being one of the most famous writers in America and Mm -hmm. from one book one book it's an insane 180 on life and she had to deal with that and she she i think that there was a point where she would kind of gave into that fame and the the lifestyle and that's why we got things like the the i want to be the jane austen of alabama because she kind of she played into that but then she realized that there's so many drawbacks to that. She doesn't get to live her life. And the only thing people want from her is the next big thing. And she's yeah. like, I don't I, I don't know what that's going to be. I just wrote the one story because that's what I was go- like. She didn't even want to write that book. She wrote something else and then changed it to this book. Yeah. So. I think... Because after reading this biography, I actually got like a little bit sad. Um because I, I was like, she had this, like, she was catapulted to fame and success. Her first ever novel was a Pulitzer Prize winner yeah. um, that, like, defined 20th century American literature. Um, and, like, I wonder if that instant fame for such a private person might have been part of the reason she just couldn't follow up with another book. It must have been really overwhelming. Um And then, like, every waking moment from the time Mockingbird was published was devoted to promoting the book. And then after that, the movie. So by the time it was done, years had passed and she was nowhere near finishing a new book. So I, I can totally see how that could kind of turn into like a paralyzing fear almost like you've written this amazing, beloved, like two year long bestseller. How are you supposed to follow that up? Right. <clears throat> I, yeah. yeah, I don't know if I could do it. I mean, look at like uh, Gillian Flynn, right? She wrote several books and it wasn't till like her third or fourth one that a movie got made. And then by that time, people started to recognize her name. And then the books that came out before Gone Girl, then they're like, oh, we've got these other books that we can also go read and make movies and TV shows off of. And that gives her so much time to work on the next one and then the next one. And then by the time she does come out with the next book, she's a household name. She's, you know, become an author that people are like, oh, yeah, she has a style. And she's had time to figure out what that style is. Yeah, to grow and make mistakes and... Yeah, I, I think instant fame is kind of dangerous in yeah. any area of life. You become stagnant really quickly. Mm-hmm. 
So um, moving into the end of her life, we've talked a lot about how To Kill a Mockingbird was her only book, but there's actually a second book out in the world with Harper Lee's name on it, and it's Ghosts at a Watchman. So Alice Lee died in November of 2014 at the age of 103. Yeah. She worked in, as a lawyer almost up until her death, into her 90s. Yeah. This lady was insane. Alice Lee deserves, like, some fame, too. She yeah. sounds like a total badass. Um, but anyway, so she had been Nell's lawyer and fiercest protector for her whole life after Mockingbird was published. She dies in November. In February, Harper Collins announced it would publish Ghosts at a Watchman. And according to the press release, it was originally thought that the manuscript for this was lost. Nell's new lawyer, Tanya Carter, who had worked in Alice's firm and took over for her after Alice um, passed away, said that she had found it in Nell's safe deposit box in 2014. And after talking with Nell, had passed the manuscript on to her new agent, Andrew Nurnberg. Uh, Andrew said that he reviewed old letters between Nell and her original publisher and discovered that Watchmen was meant to be the third book in a Mockingbird trilogy. Hmm. But actually, Watchmen is just the first draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. Um, which I didn't realize when I read it. Now it makes total sense. Yeah. Because I, I read it before I read um, the biography. Yeah. There's entire so, paragraphs that are lifted from Watchmen. That to, are still that are in Mockingbird. Yeah. yeah. So the book is set about 20 years after Mockingbird with an adult scout finch returning to Maycomb, Alabama from New York City to visit her father. And after reading it, like, I can see why it was edited into Mockingbird. But we might talk about that in our chill episode. I think think we're going to talk a lot more about Watchmen in the next episode. The the. Not the comic book, the Watchmen. The The book itself. The book by But yeah, but so they kind of presented this in a false way right out the gate. Um, And according to the initial press release, Lee was delighted at the manuscript's discovery and humbled and amazed that it was due to be published. But some of her friends thought this sounded really off, that the novel was being published when Nell had maintained for more than 50 years that she wasn't going to publish another book and that she had said all she wanted to say with Mockingbird. Yeah. Um, One friend and her former neighbor, who I think was the one who wrote the biography you read, uh, her name was Marja Mills. Yeah. She wrote in the Washington Post that Alice Lee had once said, poor Nell Harper can't see and can't hear and will sign anything put before her by anyone in whom she has confidence. Uh, Marja also described Lee as in a wheelchair in an assisted living center at this time, nearly deaf and blind, with a uniformed guard posted at the door and her visitors restricted to people on an approved list. So they're really painting this picture of her as like this very elderly woman who's alone now that her sister is gone. Yeah. um, And very much in a position to be taken advantage of. A New York Times columnist named Joe Nocera also wrote that Tanya Carter had been present during a meeting in 2011 when the manuscript had been discussed so that she knew full well it was the same one that Nell submitted to publishers in the 50s. So he was like, this is total bullshit that you just (laughs) discovered this. Um, He argued that Carter had been sitting on that discovery waiting for Alice to die and leave her in charge of Nell's affairs, which sounds very nefarious. Yeah, seriously. 
So in 20 in February of 2015, um, the state of Alabama actually launched an investigation into whether Lee was competent enough to consent to publishing Ghosts at a Watchman. The investigation ultimately found that the claims of coercion and elder abuse were unfounded. And according to Lee's lawyer, Lee was happy as hell with the publication. Hmm. I still am very skeptical. Yeah, it's, it's just like when we did the uh, Jordan Roberts story and Robert Jordan <laughs> Robert Jordan every fucking time it was him right that had the story that was like public. he said he was never going to publish it yeah, was and then like 10 and years his, after he died they published it published it or whatever and I was yeah. like why do you you know you knew he didn't want to do that so it's it's interesting how that can happen just the timing on the whole thing i think for me is enough to raise suspicion, like two months after Alice dies, yeah. you you're gonna publish this thing. So well, I don't know. Let's let's talk about her death. Um, I want to talk about Watchmen more in the next episode. We're gonna get in depth on that, I think, because there's yeah. a lot, lot to unpack with that book. And maybe if you guys disagree with me and don't think it's suspicious and have like an argument for why this should have been published, uh, send us an email or, or DM us on Instagram and. Let us know. Like, I'd love to hear a counterpoint on this because I feel like pretty much everything I read was very much against it. Yeah. Yeah. So how'd she die? She died in her sleep on the morning of February 19th, 2016, at the age of 89. She gets death handed to her, too? (laughs) She she don't even get a death that's like, oh, man, that sucks. It's like, no. Also, she's going to die so peacefully. She died in an assisted living facility. That's kind of depressing. She was all alone. Why do you why do you want her death to be so tragic? I don't want it to be tragic. I just want her to pay for something in this world. <laughs> Tyler is so jealous right now. I, you know... I'm jealous of the fact that she wrote one book and got to be rich for her entire life off of that. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Damn. But yeah, I'm I'm happy that she died peacefully. Um, and yeah, I hope that her final years were were happy and that people treated her well. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Yeah, I'm sure she she got lucky. She got real lucky. That's what I'm gonna say. <laughs> she did get very lucky. It is truly like the fairy tale journey to fame that all authors dream about. So, uh, do you do you like um, how to kill a mockingbird? More <laughs> how to kill or one? less? <laughs> no, we got to talk about the books more in depth next time. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk about the books. And we'll actually, I need to reread To Kill a Mockingbird. I haven't read it since. High school, probably. I read uh, Ghost at a Watchman for this episode, but um, didn't have time to read To Kill a Mockingbird, so I'm going to finish that soon. Um, so, yeah. So, you guys can go read uh, either of those two books and email us your your thoughts on Harper Lee and her first book and her most famous book. Huh? You like how I did that? See that? I'm gonna say, yeah, they're it's both the same thing. <laughs> no, it's not. Watchmen was her first book. Well, I don't count them as separate books, really. I know. Again, we're gonna get into that. Yeah, Let's, we'll talk. We'll talk about that. Um, 
if you guys want to email us your your thoughts on today's episode and uh, any, you know, what grade did you read this book in? What was it like when you had to do a, a book report? If you have your old book report of this, send it to us. Oh, that would be so fun. Uh, you can send those to lewisandlovecraft at gmail.com. You can go to our website, lewisandlovecraft.com. And uh, there you can see some merch. You can see uh, some pictures of some old white dudes that we've talked about before. Um, if you want to uh, interact with us, Facebook and Instagram is where you can do that. Instagram, more likely. Um, Instagram, we post just about every other day at this point. Yeah. yeah. We're most active there, for sure. Yeah. If you, if you comment on something, we'll comment pretty quickly there. Um, what else can people do, Hannah? Uh, well, you should definitely rate and review us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, um, any other venue where you're allowed to rate us. You can rate uh, episodes on Spotify too, or at least the show on Spotify. You can, yeah, and you can review the show, but only with like a like stars rating, not like a review. Yeah, you can do reviews on iTunes or like a friend of ours did on Podchaser, reviewed nine days ago. Between Lewis and Lovecraft, perfect for readers, writers, and those interested in the often bonkers lives of notable authors. BLNL combines exceptional journal research from Hannah, informed <laughs> input, and interesting opinions from Tyler, and a whole lot of unexpected humor all wrapped up into one podcast about books and the weirdos who write them. That's got to be Devani. Nope. The hosts <gasps> have incredible chemistry. The production quality is stellar. The inside jokes are bananas. And if you don't find yourself smiling through the entire hour-long episode, there's something fundamentally wrong with you. Their, is it Brit? Nope. Their interviews <gasps> with emerging, established, and not dead writers and creators are an added bonus. 10 out of 10 would recommend this legitimately is the only podcast I listen to. Who wrote this? Uh, Brianna. Really? Yeah. Oh my gosh, thank of you so Brianna much. Brianna wrote it. It's the most well-written review I've ever read in my life. That's so <laughs> sweet. She called me a journo. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, go leave us a review. It doesn't have to be as good as Brianna's, but if you want to try and, and you know, kind of outdo Brianna as Truman <laughs> tried to outdo uh, Harper Lee, then go to Podchaser and leave a review there. That, oh, that just made my day. Thank you, Brianna. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> um, Tyler, what's the best way, other than, like, giving us a, a warm and fuzzy review that people can help us? Um, go beat the shit out of little boys <laughs> that are bullying other little boys. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Make friends with the boys that we're getting beat up on and tell your friends about our show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Be like Truman Capote and just gossip about our show to yeah. everybody you talk to. The best way you can support us is by giving us one year's worth of all of our expenses <laughs> so that we can do this show and write a book that will end up being a Pulitzer Prize. 
Uh, tell your friends about our show. That's the best thing you can do. Take five minutes out of your day and just mention the fact that you listen to a show about books or that you read books. And I literally, I do this all the time. I, I it's, it's like baiting the, the ad where in a conversation I'll just drop like, yeah, I read a lot or I'm, I'm a fan of books or do you, you know, do you like books? And, and that starts a conversation about that. And then I'm able to talk about the podcast. You can do the same thing. It's not hard. It's super easy. It is hard. I'm so much more socially anxious than you are. But I did have a conversation like that. Actually, when I was buying books, I was trying to find a biography and the bookseller was like asking me about it. She was like, oh, do you like biographies? And I'm like, well, actually, for my show, I read them a lot. And then I told her about Between Lewis and Lovecraft. There you go. So So you guys can do it too. I'm the most socially awkward person in the world. And I talk to a a person, not a friend, but like a a new friend, a prospective friend. Yeah, there you go. Um, So yeah, so uh, next episode, we're going to be chilling out, talking about racism and uh, (laughs) how you should not have heroes because they will ultimately let you down. And um, that's okay. And it's okay. It's going to be okay, guys. Hey, Google Gang, it's going to be okay. (laughs) You sound like such a dad right now. (laughs) I do. I know. Hopefully a better dad than Atticus Finch. Oh, He was a pretty okay dad. We'll talk about it next time. (laughs)